Well, if you're our guest this morning, thanks for being here. Um, we are making our way through the book of Exodus. We started it about a year, of, year ago, and through many breaks and dangers and toils and snares, we have found ourselves in Exodus 20 this morning. We are getting ready to wrap up a series through the Ten Commandments. We find ourselves at the Ninth Commandment this morning, which means one more to go, and then we're going to resume our brisk pace um, through the book of Exodus, hopefully finishing it up around Easter. The... Uh, Ninth Commandment has gotten quite a bit of uh, press, and it's made the top ten list of popular songs for a lot of years. I don't know if you're aware of that, but there have been a frequent number of songs who have sung about the Ninth Commandment and the effects of the Ninth Commandment. I'd like to share some of those with you this morning. Don Henley, the singer with the Eagles, when he was during his solo days in the early 1980s, wrote a song called Dirty Laundry, and in 1982 he wrote the following words. He says, I make my living off the evening news. Just give me something, something I can use. People love it when you lose. They love dirty laundry. Can we film the operation? Is the, de is the head dead yet? You know the boys in the newsroom got a running bet. Get the widow on the set. We need dirty laundry. He says, dirty little secrets, dirty little lies. We got our dirty little fingers in everybody's pie. We love to cut you down to size. We love dirty laundry. Marvin Gaye was singing about it even before Don Henley was in 1968 when he wrote the following. Oh, I bet you're wondering how I knew about your plans to make me blue with some other guy you knew before. Between the two of us guys, you know I loved you more. It took me by surprise, I must say, when I found out yesterday. Don't you know that I heard it through the grapevine? Not much longer would you be mine. Oh, I heard it through the grapevine. Oh, I'm just about to lose my mind. So the 60s had it, the 80s had it, 2017 had it. When Willie Nelson wrote his song, Still Not Dead, he said the following, I woke up still not dead again today. The internet said I had passed away. But if I die and I wasn't dead to stay, and I woke up still not dead again today. This is the world we live in, a world that is filled with bearing false witness. Sadly, lying has become a common part of ordinary life for many people today. A 2014 survey of more than 1,200 adults found that 76% said that it's okay to lie sometimes. According to this survey, 21% of men admitted that they had lied on their resumes compared with 16% of women. In addition, 37.4% of men and 43.6% of women had lied to their parents, and 21% of men and 21.6% of women had lied to their spouses or significant others. A 2014 British survey found that people lie on average 10 times a week. A 2002 study done at the University of Massachusetts Amherst found that 60% of people cannot go longer than 10 minutes without telling a lie and told an average of two or three lies during that time. Another British survey done in 2008 found that people lie four times a day or 1,460 times a year and by the age of 60 will have lied 88,000 times. Such widespread dishonesty is destructive cancer and it's relentlessly eating away at the fabric of our society. We turn on the news and we read the newspaper and oftentimes we just assume they're lying. It's so common. In fact, the Ninth Commandment 
is so relevant that God put it here for a reason. He put it in the Ten Commandments, in the Ten Words, because as we've been talking about in these last several sermons, they deal with horizontal neighbor love. They, they, they deal with how to protect each other so that a society can flourish. That's why there are commands against murder and theft and adultery and such things and prizing and protecting marriage and life and property and here in this case, prizing and protecting each other's reputations and good name. In fact, God makes a person's reputation a sacred thing. God listens to every whisper. God watches every like on Facebook. God notes every retweet and comment on social media. God reads every email. God hears every phone call. And our interaction and conversation about one another matters to God. It matters to him so much that he included it in the Ten Commandments. Therefore, to diminish a person's good name by spin or by lies or by exaggerations, by slanders, by incomplete accounts, by misrepresentations and self-serving narratives, one-sided versions of events, not including the facts unfavorable to yourself. Brothers and sisters, theories, there are many ways we can violate the Ninth Commandment, and we do. It's one of the primary ways we do violence to one another, even in the church. Paul had to write about it frequently to the churches in the first century in his letters. It's one of the primary ways, I said, that we do violence to one another. It's also one of the primary ways we dishonor God, that we deconstruct a gospel culture in a church, that we replace it with an anti-gospel culture that God cannot bless, and that scares unbelievers away from churches. God deserves churches in this world marked by beauty, humaneness, restraint, kindness, humility, where every reputation is guarded as a sacred thing for Jesus' sake. May God make us such a church. If he does, we'll be blessed. If he doesn't, we won't be. We can have it one way or another. We can have rancor and discord that God will not bless, or we can have peace and beauty and humaneness, which he will. And that comes through obedience to the ninth commandment. So this morning we're going to consider the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness under five headings. I hope to tick through these fairly quickly, so hang with me. The first is the immediate context. I want to talk about what was the immediate application to this command in the to the people of Israel when God was giving his ten words through Moses on the mountain. Well, the immediate context, as many of you are likely aware, for this commandment is the court of law. It is meant to govern the testimony that is given by a witness before a jury in a public trial. If you're there in Exodus 20, flip over three chapters to Exodus 23 and look at the first three verses of Exodus 23. This gives you the original context of Exodus 20, verse 16, to not bear false witness. There we read, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So what's clearly in view is trials where witnesses and credible witnesses are necessary, witnesses that don't bear false testimony. In an effort to preserve justice, God sets up several protections within Israel's law code to ensure and protect the importance of true witnesses. Without going into too much detail here, just a few things to share with you about this. 
It was required in the Old Covenant that only on the evidence of two or three witnesses could a charge be established. In other words, one witness was not sufficient to condemn someone. This was especially critical in a case involving a capital offense where no one could be put to death by the testimony of one witness. We see this in Deuteronomy 19.15, in Numbers 35.30, and in Deuteronomy 17.6. And the New Testament applies this same standard to accusations against pastors in 1 Timothy 5.19, that if an accusation comes against a pastor, that must be accredited by two or three witnesses. Second, it was required that when someone was sentenced to die because of their crime, that the accuser had to be the one to cast the first stone in Deuteronomy 17.7. This was a significant safeguard because the one who accused them actually had to be the one who initiated their death. And so this would be a conscience catcher. It would have to be something in which, okay, if you really believe this person did this, you got to do it. you got to pick up the stone and start the capital punishment. And yet, we see this in John chapter 8 with Jesus and the woman who was caught in adultery, right? They come, they bring the adulterous woman, she's guilty, and then Jesus says, who among you will cast the first stone? Which one among you is sinless? Go ahead and do it, and of course they didn't. But that's where that came from, the idea that they are the one accusing, therefore they should be the one punishing. Third, if the witness was found to testify falsely, then another safeguard was that the false witness would receive the punishment the accused would have received if they were found guilty. We see this in Deuteronomy 19, 18, and 19. You see the beauty of God's justice in terms of preserving justice in the society of Old Covenant Israel. The design was the charge had to be established by two or three witnesses. The, the accuser had to be the one to initiate the punishment. And if the accuser was found to be bearing false testimony they received the punishment. You see how such actions would serve to be legal safeguards to protect the innocent from injustice. That was the design. God's people were called, according to Zechariah 8.16, to speak the truth to one another, render in your gates judgments that are true, and make for peace. That was God's design. And it was a beautiful design. It was a design that was designed to protect and justice and ensure that that justice was executed with integrity and truth. So that's the immediate context. Point number two, the broader principle. The courtroom is not the only place where false testimony is given. False testimony is found over the backyard fence when we speak to our neighbors, in our juicy text messages, and in the whispers of church members in the back corners of a gymnasium. The underlying principle here is not just bearing false witness, but rather avoiding every form of falsehood. This is confirmed in Hosea chapter 4, verse 2, where we read, There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and commit adulter committing adultery. Hosea was prophesying about what he saw in the life of the people of Israel, and he obviously is alluding to the Ten Commandments. But notice what he says. He says, There is swearing, there is lying, and then he says, there's murder, stealing, and committing adultery. Well, we know those are clearly commands we've already considered. Murder, theft, committing adultery. But he says, he doesn't use the words bear false witness. He uses the words swearing and lying. So the ninth commandment forbids all forms of falsehood, not just false testimony in a court, but all forms of falsehood, which include lying, and it's not limited to only the court of law. 
Proverbs 14.5 emphasizes this when we read, A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness breathes out lies. See, the principle is broader. The false witness principle is not just limited to a court of law. It's, it, it extends broadly to lying in general. And Jesus expands the application in Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. Jesus, applying this commandment, says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, that is, you shall not bear false witness, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. See, Jesus extends the bearing of false witness to what we promise God we will do, like marriage vows or oaths and vows that we take, like in covenant church membership those sorts of oaths that we take upon ourselves. He says, you, when, you make, when you swear by the name of God, you make sure you perform those things. Verse 34, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. See, Jesus is arguing that the principle of the law is to be so full of integrity that you don't have to swear by anything, that your word literally is your bond, that what you say, your yes is your yes, and your no is your no, and that you don't have to do what the Pharisees were doing, which is trying to avoid swearing by the name of God. You don't say swear to God. You say, well, I swear by heaven. See, you're avoiding swearing by the name of... But then he said, don't do that. Heaven's God's throne. And then he said, well, I'll swear by the earth. Well, don't do that. That's his footstool. Well, I'll swear by Jerusalem. No, that's the city of God. So you can't get around it anyway. The point is, don't swear at all. Swear that your word should be sufficient. The broader principle is integrity of speech. Now, as we know, falsehood comes in all shapes and sizes. It happens when we misrepresent, mislead, misquote, or misinterpret someone and through that inaccurate perception, communicate something that is out of step with reality. Sadly, Christians on Twitter do this all the time. The breaking of the ninth commandment in social media is horrendous. It happens when we maliciously twist someone's words and take them out of context. What we say may be true, but we leave out the details that might put us at a disadvantage. The standard is, so, is to so fairly represent someone that even if we disagree with them, that they would not only affirm what we are saying, but that what we actually state is, is, a, is a view of their view that's a statement better than they could make. In other words, we are so fairly representing other people's views that they would say, wow, that's even said better than I could say it. That's how well we are to represent other people, even those with whom we disagree or we say something that is technically true, but oftentimes the intent is to deceive. We can overstate our accomplishments, putting ourselves in the best possible light while at the same time exaggerating others' failings, thinking and speaking the worst about others. We can assign motives, which are not our prerogative to do. Motives belong to God. We flatter with insincere and excessive praise in order to manipulate people. We spread false information which is intended to inflict harm or we share damaging information with the intent to destroy, okay, not destroy, but, minimally, minim, but at minimum affect someone's reputation. And this is why the New Testament speaks of the power of our tongues to wield great damage. 
James chapter 6, 3, verses 6 through 12. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The, the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt, want, salt pond yield fresh water. When we read a verse like that from James, he's literally saying the way we use our tongues and the things we talk about with them reveals whether we're a Christian or not. You can't produce from the same pond salt water and fresh water. Christians produce one kind of water as a, as a practice. Now, we all sin with our mouths. James makes that clear. Who can tame the tongue? But the point is, is a tongue that's preoccupied with salt water kinds of things cannot be a fresh water kind of person. Or a fig tree, remember Jesus' illustration of the fig tree, cannot bear olives and at the same time a grapevine produce figs. And then James says, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is why Paul tells us repeatedly to beware because we can be victims of such sins or actually vic victimizers and committing such sins. Second Corinthians 12:20 says, for I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. He says, I'm coming to you, Corinthians, and I'm, I'm afraid that when I get there, these are the kinds of things I'm going to find. Galatians 5, 19-21, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions... Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do, those who practice such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then finally, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 and 31 through 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So that's the broader principle, the principle of the tongue, to be marked by truth and kindness and not falsehood. Number three, the tolerated exception. We've considered the immediate context and the broader principle. Now let's talk about the tolerated exception. The Heidelberg Catechism is a helpful summary of the Ten Commandments. It offers a question-and-answer format and here's what the Heidelberg says regarding the duties required in the Ninth Commandment. The question is, what are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? Here's how the Catechism answers. The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are preserving and promoting of truth between man and man and the good name of our neighbor, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name, and ready, a ready receiving of a good report and an unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them a ready receiving of a good report 
and an unwillingness to admit an evil report concerning them. The Bible itself would call this gossip. And unfortunately, gossip is often the tolerated exception to the ninth commandment. The Bible assumes this, which is why it speaks of this so frequently. Psalm 15, verses 1 and 3. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who does not take up reproach against his friend. Proverbs 6, 16 and 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, one who sows discord among brothers. Leviticus 19.6, You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. James chapter 4, verse 11, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Proverbs 25, verse 9, Argue your case with your neighbor himself, and do not reveal another's secret. Romans 1.28 and 29, God gave them up to a debased mind. They are gossips. 1 Timothy 5.13, besides that, they learn to be idlers, talking about young widows who don't get married, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not, so that I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. So what is gossip? It's not necessarily false information. Slander is false, but gossip might include true information, and maybe that's why gossip doesn't always feel so sinful, because we're just saying the truth. What makes it a sin is that first and foremost, God says it is. But gossip spreads what can include accurate information to diminish another person. That's not how people behave when they're living in the power of the grace of God. Ray Ortland, commenting on the sin of gossip, says... Gossip is our dark moral fervor, eagerly seeking gratification. Gossip makes us feel important and needed as we declare our judgments. It makes us feel included to know the inside scoop. It makes us feel powerful to cut someone else down to size, especially someone we are jealous of. It makes us feel righteous, even responsible, to pronounce someone else guilty. Gossip can feel good in multiple ways, but it is of the flesh, not of the spirit. Gossip leaves a wide trail of devastation wherever and however it goes. Word of mouth, email, texting, social media. It erodes trust and destroys morale. It creates a social environment of suspicion where everyone must wonder what's being said behind their backs and whether appearances of friendship are sincere. It ruins hard-won reputations with cowardly but effective weapons of misrepresentation. It manipulates people into taking sides when no such action is necessary or beneficial. It unleashes the dark powers of psychological transference, doing violence to the gossiper, to the one receiving the gossip, and to the person being spoken against. It makes the body of Christ look like the body of Antichrist, destroyers rather than healers. It exhausts the energies we would otherwise devote to positive witness. It robs our Lord of the church he deserves. It exposes the hostility in our hearts and discredits the gospel in the eyes of the world. Then we wonder why we don't see more conversions, why, quote, the ground is so hard. Gossip, brothers and sisters, is such a common sin that we overlook just how ungodly it is. But before we open our mouths and start talking about someone else, we need to ask ourselves some really hard questions. First of all, is what I'm about to say true? And if so, does it really need to be said to this person in this conversation? 
Would I put it this way if the person I am talking about were here to listen? Would they be happy for others to know this? Does this exact information need to be communicated by me to these people at this time with this motive through this medium? If our words fail these simple tests, then it would be better for us not to say anything. This is especially needful in our day of social media, as I've already mentioned. Denny Burke wrote an article on this this very week where he says the following about the tendency to gossip online. He says, People tend to underestimate that in polite conversation, some things just ought not to be said. In face-to-face encounters, we know that a certain sense of propriety ought to govern what we say and how we say it. Yet this is often forgotten in online interactions. For some reason, people feel free to let loose online with things they would never say in person. This is a hopeless hypocrisy, yet there it is. That is why I'm convinced that Christians need to revive the wisdom of Solomon in their online speech. The book of Proverbs teaches us that the tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, Proverbs 15.2. It also says in Proverbs 16.21, sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. The Lord Jesus himself was no stranger to controversy, Matthew 12.34 and 23.31. Nevertheless, it was said of him in Luke 4.22, all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words that were falling from his lips. Does the tone of your online speech make your arguments more or less persuasive? When people are offended by you, are they put off by what you are saying or by how you are saying it? Do people marvel at the gracious words that proceed from your keyboard in the midst of controversy? But there is another side. Just as it is wrong to be a perpetrator of gossip, it's wrong to be a receiver of it. Sometimes our silence in the face of gossip is as sinful as the gossip itself. In an old rabbinic saying from the early Jewish sage went, slander kills three, the one who speaks it, the one who listens to it, and the one about whom it is spoken. Thomas Watson, Puritan, said something similar when he said, the one who speaks slander carries the devil in his tongue, the one who listens to it, the devil in his ear. Whenever we listen to gossip, we are implicated in the sin of gossip. But it feels so good, doesn't it? Especially if it's juicy. People love secrets, and there's no faster way for you to make a friend than have a mutual enemy. Sharing negative information about someone else makes us feel closer to the person we're talking to. Proverbs 18.8 tells us it would. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. But friends, make no mistake, no matter how tasty it is, it's poison. What should we do when a conversation starts slipping into gossip? Well, you should immediately challenge the sin. Hey friend, sorry to interrupt, it's gossip that we're doing. Or you can try this, which Pastor Jonathan recommended a number of years ago in his sermon on the subject. He, I wrote these down and kept them, they were good. Ask, why are you telling me this? Then ask, what's the difference between what you're telling me and gossip? Ask, how is your telling me this, this thought, this complaint, this information, going to help you and me love God and our brothers better, brothers and sisters better, and knit us closer together as a church in Christ's love? Ask, now that you've told me about that, what are you going to do about it? And then say, now that you've told me about that, you're morally obligated, and you've morally obligated me to make sure you talk to that person about it. So how long do you think you need so I know that when this becomes a sin that I'll need to confront in you? 
Or just say, here's the deal. This conversation is now on hold until you go get so-and-so, and then we can start over and say whatever you feel you must say to his face. I'm willing to be a witness to that conversation, but I will not participate in gossip. What do you want to do? Amy Carmichael established this rule as a missionary when she said, never about, always to. Never about, always to. Even better solution, brothers and sisters, how about we just keep our mouths shut? Proverbs commends that as a wise course too. Proverbs 26, 20, and 21, for lack of wood, what happens? Fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, guess what? Quarreling ceases. Who would have thought? As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. Friends, the only time we can say something about someone else's sin is when it's our God-given responsibility to give them spiritual help. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Those who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. If there's a spiritually intended good behind it that results in action, that's not gossip. But otherwise, it's none of our business. And if you find that you have less godly friends because you gossip, don't be surprised. People may be doing the biblical thing and avoiding you which is what the Bible tells us to do to gossips. Where we read in Proverbs 20, verse 19, He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a gossip. Brothers and sisters, 1 Corinthians 14, 26 gives us a standard. Let all things be done for building up. Ephesians 4, 29 and 30, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Have you ever thought about that? That's what grieves the Holy Spirit of God, is unfit, corrupt talk proceeding out of God's people's mouths. That's the context. It says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Our calling is to think and say the best about people rather than being suspicious of others' motives, we should put the best possible construction on what they have done. That's the tolerated exception. May it be tolerated no more. Number four, the deserved punishment. The deserved punishment. Brothers and sisters, God's not playing games with the ninth commandment. He's not playing games with any of the commandments, but he's not playing games with this one either. Remember Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5? Let's turn there for a moment since we haven't swished around in our Bibles too much this morning. Kind of camped in Exodus 20. Would you turn with me to the New Testament after the Gospels and go to Acts chapter 5 briefly. Remember what's going on in Acts chapter 5? We'll, we'll start in Acts 4. But in Acts 4, the church is demonstrating what we talked about last week. Stunning generosity. They're not stealing from one another. They're giving to one another. And the whole church is demonstrating this great generosity. And then Barnabas comes along and drops a really gracious gift on them. Look at chapter 4, verses 36 and 37. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's a great act of generosity. But notice how chapter 5 begins. But... But, that's never a good but. A man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
Now, just to be clear, they had the right to use their property any way they wanted to use it. They weren't required to sell their field, and once they sold it, they were not obligated to give all their money to God. There's nothing in the text that indicates that. It was a matter of stewardship, and they had the right to do with it what they wanted to do with it. The problem was not what they did, but what they said. They said they were paying God full price when in fact they were taking a discount. Notice verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why, have, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. See, the issue was that Ananias lied by acting like he had done something for God when in fact he had done something partly for himself and partly for God. That was the issue. It was what, what Barnabas did, or Joseph, he was called Barnabas, what he did, and then Ananias tried to answer it, but he didn't do it with the heart that Barnabas did. He did it with a deceitful heart. That was the issue. It wasn't the fact that he kept part of the land and then sold part of the land or whatever, or sold, sold the land and then kept part for himself and gave part to the church. It wasn't that issue at all. It was the deceit that was operating in his heart. And what happened as a result of it? death. Look at verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And then verses 7 through 11, we get the report of what happened and, and, and uh, Sapphira, his wife's death, right after that. So one day, Ananias and Sapphira were in church singing hymns, doing Bible study, and then they lie to the Holy Spirit and they're dead. Within a matter of hours, they were dragged off and buried. God is not playing games with lying. Matthew 5, 19 through 20 says, For out of the heart, this is what proceeded from Ananias and Sapphira, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Psalm 5, verse 6 God says, you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Revelation 21.8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, so that's really bad. Well, what comes right after that? And all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Revelation 22:15. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Those who love and practice falsehood, those who practice lying, those who regularly, habitually, and unrepentantly speak lies, their portion is not in the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do not be deceived revilers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Period. Don't be deceived. But the thing is, we think we can inherit the kingdom of God and still behave like that. And that's why we're deceived if we think that. Paul says, don't be deceived. Revilers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, if revilers will not inherit the kingdom of God, if liars have their portion in the lake of fire, if those who practice falsehood are cast out and God will destroy those who speak lies. Brothers and sisters, I think we're all implicated. What hope do we have? What hope do we have? Well, fifthly and finally, we come to our last point, the great Savior. 
Our hope is this. I quoted it last week. I'll quote it again. 1 Corinthians 6, 10, and 11, the verse that follows the verse I just quoted. Do not be deceived. Revilers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's what follows that statement. But such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's our hope. Three things. Being washed, being sanctified, and being justified. Let's talk about these briefly. The good news is that those of us in Christ here this morning, we are washed. And if you're outside of Christ this morning, and this sermon has been deeply convicting to your conscience as God's law has searched you out, and as it does to all of us, and reveals to us our need for a Savior, He's offered to you this morning. Jesus is calling you to come to Him to be washed. We can be washed. Revelation 7, 4. I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We're not washed by trying hard to tell the truth. That doesn't atone for your lying. What atones for your lying is the blood of the Lamb. And you go and wash in Him. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. So come to Christ, and he will cleanse you and wash you of your lying. We can be sanctified, Acts 26, 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Hebrews 10.10 And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the way we get sanctified is by faith in the offering of the body of Jesus Christ on the cross. We entrust ourselves to him. We bank on his payment for our sin. And as a result, we are brought near to God and sanctified by faith in him. Finally, we are justified. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, verses 9 and 10. Since therefore we now have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. And then Romans 10, 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. There's the gospel, friends. That's the good news, is that for all of us who are deserving of just punishment from God because of our bearing a false witness, because of the way we've used our tongues and the way we have not spoken truth when we should have and the way we spread falsehood and the way we participated in gossip and the way that we have done all such things, lying even a quarter of the time that the statistics I read at the beginning of this sermon indicate 88,000 times in our life. We can be washed, we can be sanctified, we can be justified because the blood of Jesus is just that powerful. It's just that powerful. It will cleanse a thousand-fold liar of all of their iniquity. Our hope, friends, is Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 10, and 11. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Think about this. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. What is Jesus called there? He is called the faithful witness. Aren't you glad you have a faithful witness? One who never spoke a lie? who always spoke the truth, 
If you are entrusting yourself to him as your, as your, as your Savior, he's at the right hand of God right now interceding to you, for you. And when God looks at him, he sees you. And what does he see about him? Faithful witness. And what does he see about you and him? Faithful witness. That's the good news of the gospel. Praise God that there is no deceit in the mouth of Jesus. Isaiah 53.9 prophesied that there would be no deceit in his mouth. 1 Peter 2.22 confirmed it and said there was no deceit in his mouth. He was prophesied that he wouldn't have deceit. It was fulfilled that he wouldn't have deceit. And because of Jesus, we can come to the Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. May that, the fact that he's the truth, be more precious to you than ever after hearing this sermon and reflecting on what it means to bear false witness. Oh, praise God that I have one who is called the truth, who is called the true and faithful witness to stand before God's presence on my behalf. And not only that, I've been sealed, 1 John 4, 6, with the Spirit. And you know what the Spirit's called? The Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth resides within us, and we can come to the Father who is also true. There is no lies with the Father, Romans 3, 4 says, and by the Spirit of truth, we can be transformed and sanctified by the Word of truth, so that what's true of God will progressively become more true of us. So make no mistake, friends, we have good news this morning in light of our great sin. We have a great Savior who can wash us, who sanctifies us, who justifies us. We have a great Spirit who is living within us to transform us and to make us people of the truth, people who speak the truth in love, as Ephesians 4 calls us to do. May we lean upon Christ and be empowered that, by that Spirit to do just that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the faithful witness. Thank you that there was no deceit found in your mouth. You are our only hope. And we thank you that in you we have all we need, that even though you're all we have, you are all we need. And we praise your name that you are our faithful witness. We praise your name that we have a reason to sing this morning because Christ has come and washed us. He has sanctified us. He's redeemed us. He's forgiven us. He's clothed us. He's raised us from spiritual death. He's adopted us into the family of God. He's justified us with his blood, all to the praise of your glorious grace. So thank you for this good news. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. The gospel is not good advice about being a better person and not telling lies. The gospel is good news about a great and perfect person who never told a lie and offered his life for us so that all who trust in him can be cleansed and received into the eternal family of God forever. If anyone here is in this room this morning who is outside of Christ, may they in this song together as we stand to sing in just a moment, may they confess their sins to you. May they entrust themselves to Jesus Christ by faith. And then maybe they would tell another believer here, say, hey, I want to follow Christ. What does that mean? Help me. I, I need forgiveness. I need, I need redemption. And we'll, we'll gladly point them to you. So God, thank you for your work through your word. We pray that you would sanctify it all to us and to our good and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.